Welcome to the show, Gabriel David. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Okay. Um, yeah, so my name is Gabriel. I'm uh, 29 years old. Uh, I was born in the south of France. My father is French. Um, and my mother is Danish. Um, so I was raised, born and raised in a cult called the Trojan of God originally. And then after some court cases happened uh, and uh, yeah, after like some media after the media and the police looked into the cult um, around the early 90s before I was born, um, they st the cult had to start um, like cleaning up their image. So they decided to change the name to kind of remove themselves from the bad press that they were getting worldwide. I mean, in England, in England, in America, Larry King, Larry King interviewed someone from our from our cult as well. Um, and uh, and also just to, if anyone wants to know, <clears throat> Rose McGowan was also born into the cult, and so was the Phoenix family, was also part of the same cult. So River Phoenix, the one that died of an overdose outside the Viper Room, uh, was also um yeah, born and in, born into the cult. Uh so it it has a it has a very big presence online, more so than ever, because of some recent developments involving um some women that have gone on a documentary recently and have uh gotten the Scottish police involved to help uh, track down one of their abusers. So all that to say, uh, yeah, born and raised in, in a cult. It was all I knew, born in France, and we traveled around a lot. So we actually had a caravan. It was kind of almost like kind of gypsy lifestyle for the first couple of years of my life. Very, very disorientating, very jarring for my family um, and me and my siblings. You know, it's we would go from like one year in Spain to all of a sudden going to Italy for a couple years. And uh, yeah, it was very, very, um, very strange for a young child to live like that, very uprooted. And I know in America, you guys have a term called military brat. And that's kind of like how I, I can kind of relate to that kind of narrative that some people have, you know, parents who are in the army or are serving in the, you know, naval, you know, naval force or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, it's that very, very disjointed lifestyle where you're going from place to place, you know, you try to start setting down roots for yourself as a child, that's what you need, you know, children crave structure and um, they crave uh you know, structure, they crave routines, they they crave like a, a safe environment to, to blossom and grow into the person that they need to become. And uh, I didn't have that opportunity. I, I had to move to play, from place to place. And then um, also when I was quite young, around six, seven years old, uh, after my parents started to have a trial separation, half of my siblings, including me, we went to South Africa to do uh, missionary work there to help like with poor people and some of the, the poor areas there. So I lived there for a while. And then finally, we decided um, that we were going to relocate our whole family to England, except my mother. She uh, she decided to move to Ghana uh, to further her missionary work with the cult. Um, and then I was uh, living in England for the most of my life. And then eventually, at some point around 2008, 2009, the cult decided to dissolve because they started to decide, the leaders started to decide that like, and kind of assess the situation, you know, the context of what was going on at the time, socially, politically, everything. Cults started to become, um, you know, with social media, for example, there's a lot more scrutiny. There's, it's a lot easier to access information. Whereas back in the day, we could meet people, bring them into the cult and they would have never even heard about us. They would have never heard anything about us. So that was easy to like brainwash people to join us. 
Um, but at this point, around that time, they decided that they were going to do it's like a restructuring. They called it like the reboot and they encouraged everyone just to basically leave. So again, it was a whole other level of trauma because it's like as bad as the cult was in some ways, I, it was all I knew. It was the only world I knew. It was. It felt like a world within a world. Um, so to have that ripped away from me, the friends, the, the camaraderie, the communities that we were part of, and have to just be like, it felt so cold and so heartless that they just kind of just like shoved us out. Like, okay, now the cold is gone. Everything you've known for the past, like many, many years, my parents were in it from teenagers. That's it. You're done. Nothing. No, like no, no real money, no like help, no, no way to like advise these people. Like my mom never really had a job in her entire life. That was her whole life. She dedicated blood, sweat and tears to this cult. And then suddenly we were gone. So I had to, again, kind of pick up the pieces um, and then eventually I went to high school for the first time in England and then college and then university, uh, went down a bad road in some ways, which we can maybe get into later if you're interested to hear. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah. And then I decided in 2016 that I was going to move to Denmark, which is where I live now, um, with my mom, uh, as in, I live in the same town as her, but I've got my own apartment. Um, and yeah, I'm just trying to continue processing and finding closure. Awesome. All right, then. So let's begin at the beginning. You were raised in this cult and you said your parents were in it since they were teenagers. How did they get involved in the cult? Oh, yeah, that's quite an interesting story, actually, to be honest. Um, so my mom grew up in a small town here in Denmark. Uh, she was the black sheep of the family. She had been bullied a lot as a kid and uh, really had a hard time. And then it, as she became a teenager, this was around the time in the 60s, you know, late 60s. Uh, you know, the flower power age, hippies and uh, Woodstock. That was kind of the environment that she ended up identifying with because she needed to find a community. She didn't feel like she was accepted or truly accepted and truly loved in the town that she grew up in. So she ended up getting into drugs and uh, eventually moved to Copenhagen. And in Copenhagen was where she was again, kind of, uh, we call it in, in, in cult terminology, we would call it uh, love bombing. It's just people that come up to you with a, like this like overwhelming joy and like, oh, we love you. They don't even know you, but they're like, God loves you. You know, come home with us. We'll, we'll sing you songs. We'll give you a hot meal. My mom was a teenager. She was just like really lost and confused, you know, on drugs and everything. And she needed something. She needed some way to to uh to feel i don't know to feel good again um and they they they, they provided that for her um and my dad similar story basically he was also growing up in that environment in france and then they also found him met him and John drew him in so basically they would prey on people who uh were down on their luck and were lonely gotcha all right so let's talk about uh before we get into your life in the cult what are the beliefs of this cult? The beliefs are very varied. So it started back in the 60s um, in Huntington Beach in California. And um, David Brandberg is the name of the, the leader. As a teenager, he, uh, well, he grew up with a mother named uh, Virginia Brandberg, who at the time was uh, a very, very popular all over America televangelist. She would go into tabernacles and she would do like 
um, uh, sermons for big crowds. So he grew up with that, seeing his mother like evangelizing the world and believing in God. So his his world was like his worldview was formed by that. His his mission in life was to kind of emulate what his mother had accomplished that at that point by that point. Um, so again, going back to what I said about my parents, he was in Huntington Beach and he was seeing all these lost and confused drug addicted hippies. And he was like, he says in letters that he wrote and spread out to all the homes and all the communities in our cult all around the world. Um, he uh, he was basically saying like uh, that he at the time he was also kind of confused. He didn't like the churches. The churches kind of rejected him because basically his uh, his idea of religion was uh, very, very controversial. It was all about sex, basically. Everything about him is just, it all starts from sex, just as disturbing, as weird as possible. So he says like, Jesus is sex, God is sex, and we need to, you know, God loves that. God doesn't hate, you know, the devil hates sex and God wants us to explore our bodies and do whatever we want with anyone we want. Um, so he started this uh, this cult basically to to draw in and he could see What's sad is that he saw the vulnerability in these, and that's what that's the make that's the beginnings, the makings of a cult leader right there. He saw the vulnerability in these hippies, these young, you know, disenfranchised, jaded young people who just didn't want to be part of what their parents were doing. They didn't want to have careers. They wanted to, you know, they wanted to try something new. They wanted to live a wild and fun life. Um, so he just started collecting them, and then we had communes all over the world. We were in about 180 different, 184 different countries at the height of the of the cult's popularity wow 180 different countries that's wild man all right so let's get into it what was so you were born in this cult your earliest memories are in this cult what in the world was your daily life like Another good question. Um, it was very, very, this is another thing, like uh, going back to what I was saying about how kids need structure and, you know, having to move around so much. Uh, it was very varied. It was too, um, I, can't, I can't think of the word right now. It was just too uh, disjointed, basically. We would go from like one year in, for example, Spain in a home, we would live also, our communes within the cult, we would live with like five, five, sometimes five or six different families in one house, one big like house. Um, but when I grew up, we were living with like maybe two or three families and then my, my own family. Um, and in some places it was very strict. So there was like people there that were giving beatings just whenever there were these people that were very vicious, violent men, you know, middle-aged men who were, who were hell bent on basically like, you know, um, teaching us to be like soldiers for Jesus. That was what we were taught. That, that's kind of the environment we're brought up into, like winning souls for Jesus. We have to go out, you know, almost every day to, to evangelize the world. You know, there's a Bible verse that says, go ye into all the gospel and preach the, uh, sorry, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that was like one of our mission statements as well. So we would go from like one place was very strict. And then the next, next place, I felt like I was being totally neglected. My education was being neglected. I was stuck in the house all day because I was young. So all the other people, all the older people were doing all these things, going out and witnessing, traveling around. You know, uh, we would have to also rely on donations from people because no one had jobs, no one had any money. Um, so we relied off the kindness of strangers, basically. So it was very, very, my day-to-day -day life was very strange. For example, if uh, to give you one example to see like an inside of it, um, in South Africa, when I was in Cape Town living there with my, with my mom and a couple of my siblings, we, um, 
uh, we we started a, a, a kind of like a missionary kind of thing, like a way to like uh, draw people into the cult, which was to perform songs um, and learn dances and have singing solos. That was another huge part of the of the cult as well. Um, uh, back in the day, actually, before I was born, um, some of the American members of the cult, they actually performed at the White House for, I believe it was George Bush's father for like him and Barbara Bush. So, you know, that was one of our main things. It was such a good way. You know, you see all these happy, smiling kids on the stage singing about the love of Jesus. It seems so wholesome. Right. But, um, but behind the scenes, we were being like, for example, in Cape Town, when I was doing that, there was times we would go out and do it. And one time I remember very vividly, we would, we were going out and we were like the kids, all of us were kind of in a kind of like in a wild mood, like a bit hyper, a bit like overexcited. So the, the adults that were taking care of us to do this show were like, you guys need to calm down. You guys need to just relax, whatever. And we just couldn't, we were just like very pent up. We, we were like, you don't know, like almost like prisoners in these homes. So when we finished it, we thought we did a great job. We went home, we started watching a movie. And then all of a sudden they, one of the, um, we call them uncles. They were like, we were all like one big happy family, apparently. Um, he turned off the movie halfway through and said, all of you go wait in your room now. One by one, we're all going to talk to you. And then you're all going to get a spanking. So literally all the children in the home had to wait in the kid's room. The little ones were crying as young as like six, seven, eight, waiting for us. And they started with the oldest. It felt so like, structured like like almost like armies kind of style um and we had and i remember when it was my turn walked into like a, a very darkened room it just felt very disturbing like very creepy like looking back now it just feels really disturbing and um my mom was sitting there and two other people and my mom never was into all of this stuff she tried to protect us as much as possible um but yeah, we had to talk about everything. They gave us like an hour long talk about like, Jesus is so disappointed in you and you should be very disappointed in yourself. And then we went into another room and someone else was sitting there and was uh, spanking us. So that's just a little example of what it could be like sometimes. All right. So you said your mom wasn't really into it. Um, and she would probably, What about your father? Um, mm -hmm. Was he a true believer? He was a well, that's a good question. It's kind of with my dad, it's a bit of um, a mixed bag. He he liked the cult for some of what it stood for. So he enjoyed some of the things. But I think it was very difficult for my parents to process some of the more controversial teachings because there was a lot of disturbing teachings. But you also have to remember that it wasn't it wasn't like enforced. It wasn't like you have to do these things. It was basically a guide of how they wanted the members of the cult to live by. But every home could like if they were into that kind of stuff and even the weird, more controversial sides of it, they could do that. But luckily with my parents from my siblings, they were not into any of that, nothing sexual, barely any kind of physical abuse, just like spanking sometimes. But I mean, growing up, I don't know about you, but like I, there is corporal punishment in some families, of course. And it's not, it doesn't have to be traumatic. It can also just be a way to teach you and grow you as a, as a, as a, as a young man, you know, to be a good person. So I don't, I don't have traumatic memories at all of my parents doing anything, inflicting any kind of really permanent or severe damage to me. Um, so, yeah. All right. So what is your relationship with your father now? Is he still alive or yet? Are you guys on good terms or we're on really good terms? Actually. Yeah. It's been a really healing journey. Um, it took quite a few years. Um, we had a lot of, you know, what I think that can happen sometimes in the dynamic of a father and a son, you know, he has certain expectations for his son. He wants to see his son grow into the kind of man that maybe he wanted to be as a kid or, 
you know, he wants the best for me. So we, we didn't see eye to eye for many years, but uh, for the past, like, I don't know, seven, eight years now, it's been wonderful. You know, we've connected and we, we working through the pain and the trauma of it. And now that the cold is gone, my dad is not associated with it anymore. So that's good news anyway. So one thing, um, when I did my research, I did a little bit of research because when I, I wanted my conversation with you to be fresh and uh, spontaneous. So there was a lot of sexual abuse. That's one of the things that they're known for, like child sexual abuse. Did you witness any of that? No, I didn't witness any of it, but I know people, many people from the cult that have been, that were systematically from a very young age, sexually abused. Um, but like I was going, I was saying before, first it was the Trojan of God. So that was the, that was the legal name of it. When I was raised, I was born in 94. It was called the Family International or they were, they were, they were kind of phasing out the Trojan of the God, uh, Children of God title to become Family International to make it sound more, less kind of weird and like uh, hippie, you know, more, more like family friendly, I guess, more public friendly. And they started working on like PR relations with people, with the, with the media, with courts, with whoever was around. So that, that side of things kind of petered out. Um, but the older generation of kids, the first kids that were born into the cult, it was a complete different story. I know some of them from back then that were, yeah, they, in some of the homes that they lived in back then in the eighties, that was, that was the height of like the most disturbing things that happened was in the eighties. Um, and there was huge homes. We'd call them combos, combo homes. And it'd be like massive properties. And it'd be like literally like eight or nine families all living under one roof, trying to make it work between all these different dynamics and and some of the homes not all of them but back then there was some homes that had a, a schedule on the wall called sharing schedule and sharing means like sexual um connection with someone or whatever and they had all the young girls written their names and then all the middle-aged men written there and they had times and days which which ones would go with which men whoa yeah that's wild so um you said you you've met other people in this cult. I'm assuming you guys have like support groups and things like that for ex-members. Uh, what What is that like? Like, how do you heal from something like this? I imagine it's a ton of therapy, but, you know, so basically what I'm asking is, is there support groups and how do you heal? This, yeah, I, that's another thing I actually want to talk about. So I'm glad that you touched on that, um, that aspect. Um, so when the cult ended officially and everyone all the people dispersed you know everyone started to live and get their own places having to start work um all the children were going into education for the first time going to public school um so at the beginning of that stage for the first like i would say maybe 10 15 years there was i i don't i never heard of any support groups i didn't hear about anyone really connecting everyone was there was two kinds of people that left you know young people that were born and raised there was the ones that left and stayed in contact with all of their friends because they wanted a sense of you know a sense of like uh community still they missed that but they they were not interested in the in the cult anymore they just were really happy for their friends and then there was me I was in the second camp of people and I I just felt intrinsically like a gut reaction to all of that was to literally just close that chapter for now push it down ignore it like it never happened and go into public school and make friends with normal people um uh and uh, and just live my life get work and just get my my ish together you know um 
And then just recently, in the past couple of years, thankfully, there's a there's been a Facebook group that started for our members and you know certain certain ones really felt like they needed it and they and they joined so now we have a really big community of over 200 of us that uh that are supporting each other mentally and you know spiritually whatever financially even and there's also two different um charity organizations or something not support groups but like a charity organizations one in america and one just opened up in england which is to give like a safe haven for people who have left cults but in particular our cult uh, financial support, you know, advice for work, advice for, you know, how to get in touch with mental health professionals, for therapy, for medication. So yeah, it's looking up. It's looking up. All right. So you mentioned this reboot about how, like I think you said, 1994, about how they shut down and uh, they dispersed. Oh, no, sorry, not 1994, around 2008, 2009. 2008. All right. So is that when you officially left the cult? Or did you leave before then? No, I'm. I mean, in a way, obviously, I I do wish that my parents would have noticed before, like got it, got, got the hang of it, because there was a lot of publications that were uh, circulated from the leader. Um, and then when he died, his wife took over as the the new leader of the of the cult. Um, and there were some really disturbing things that were being written about and talked about and celebrated and condoned. Um, but I think it was difficult. You know, it's a whole complex situation when you're dealing with brainwashing, you're dealing with love bombing and a, and a sense of community. It's so hard to break out of that. But yes, we we left when around the time the cult was starting to close down. We, my dad had a feeling of it. It was like, this is the time, you know, I need to get my children settled and keep them healthy and strong. And I need to get some oh, really work really hard for my, you know, to, to, to make a, to make a life for my my children now. It's the right time. So he was we were all very happy to leave when we did. So is the cult totally done or is it still around in some way, shape or form? We definitely have some people from the old generation, from the ones that joined uh, voluntarily. They Some of them have some little community online, but it's not, there, there's nothing like, <laughs> there's no one that's still doing any of that work or actually really believing in that stuff anymore. It's just little communities online of people who need to, for moral support and stuff. <coughs> um, let's see here. So when, once the cult uh, ended and you were out, what kind of challenges did you face transitioning into the real world? Um, I would say the main challenge, but it wasn't a huge challenge. It was kind of an exciting challenge for me because I was quite young. I was only like, I was already like uh, 16, roughly 16 around the time that uh, I went into public school. So that was a challenge to have to go to public school. But I don't know, I think because I, I traveled so much and I was constantly moving from place to place, I was so used to adapting to new situations. You know, when you're when you're born and raised in one small village or one small town, it's all you know. So that would be a huge culture shock for someone like that. But I never had that, you know, I was constantly being uprooted. So for me, it was like, well, yeah, here we go. It's another it's another thing for me to adapt to. Let's just get it going, you know, and I really enjoyed it. I didn't have I don't have anything to complain about. My school experience was fantastic. And I was so excited and grateful to have that at a young age to get that high school degree and then college and then university in London. So so in that way, it was fine. The, the, I would say the main challenges I faced was just um, psychological challenges. You know, I didn't know I didn't really have access at the time when I was when we first left the, the cult. 
um, to, uh, to get therapy, to get on medication and things like that. So I was kind of floundering as a person. I felt like I was kind of a fish out of water, really. Um, psychologically, it was very difficult. Even a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of really dark thoughts. Um, yeah. Um, what about education wise, like going from no school whatsoever to high school? I mean, were you homeschooled within the cult? Were you so you were up to date, like you knew math and reading and all I that knew, kind of stuff? Okay, well, I knew enough. I had a basic level of like a big, like a beginner slash amateur understanding of of mathematics, science science was not really something that we really engaged in because of course they believed obviously science science equals evolution evolution equals turning away from god um and uh, so science was not really a big thing obviously biology a bit little little bits here and there but uh, the main thing that i learned really well was english language and english literature we read a lot of books we uh, we read a lot constantly reading even the publications from the cult so we were always around reading so I had a very good understanding of how to um, verbalize what I'm thinking making good points being intelligent I I I I think I'm I'm a rather intelligent person so I was rather bright thanks to some of the good things in the cult um, unfortunately some of the older members of the of the ones who born and raised in the cult the older ones who are now in their, their late 30s early 40s they had to stop uh education around 13 14 years old because that was the age when we decided the cult decided that they had to start taking care of the little kids that were being raised because the parents were so distracted by you know it you know trying to evangelize the world and save the world from you know going to hell so um so that was difficult but for me it wasn't so bad like i i, I adapted pretty well my siblings too we all kind of just um adapted and you know obviously we did some tests to get into university to college to high school whatever we were you know whatever level we were at and it went well so all right so i want to uh, go back a little bit um and talk about things that the cult did you mentioned uh missionary work what did their missionary work can uh consist of i will say in some ways we did a lot of good things for the world so especially in africa that became a hot spot for a lot of members. Um, after we sort of gained a lot of scrutiny from the press and the media in uh, America, obviously I wasn't there, but you know, in America, the members that were there, our leader kind of got the hint that like, this could really blow the lid off what's really going on. And he was obviously afraid. So he started to encourage all of us sending messages saying, go to Asia, go to, and go to Africa and start to, instead of just just focusing on winning souls for Jesus, which of course we were always doing, but let's also try and do some uh, charity work and some missionary work that we can show to the world. If anyone is coming around, we can show like, look, we're actually going out to these places. And we really did. When I was living in uh, in Cape Town, we would go to certain regions like uh, Deep Sloot and Soweto and places like that to go and, and give food to the needy. We would, we would get uh, rich people involved in supplying us with food that we would then give to them and uh, take care of these people. When I was in Ghana for a year, I was very young, but me, my sister, and my mom, and the home we were in, we uh, we converted our garage into a school for homeless children and orf orphans and stuff, and they would come every day, and we would be there teaching them English and giving them hot food, hot lunches, and stuff. So there was some good aspects to that, but of course, the underlying thing, the iceberg under the water, was massive with all the controversies. And you mentioned about like performing. Was that a part of your outreach? 
Yeah. So like what kind of like just singing and dancing? Singing and dancing. So we would, it started like, I think around this, probably the seventies, I would say the seventies, but again, the eighties was where it really like took off. So there were homes in Japan, for example, where, uh, they became very famous. A lot of the homes, our cult kind of became famous, but in, in a good way, like they, they somehow managed to, um, to hide all the dark stuff that the cult was doing. And actually Japan really welcomed them a lot. So they were able to get free housing everywhere they went, they would get free housing. They got, um, free equipment to make for cameras and stuff like that to produce our own videos. We were selling videos of us dancing and not me, but the older ones um, to different people for money, again, for donations to supply us, obviously with food and shelter and everything like that. So yes, the, and I think it, it makes sense from a psychological point of view. And if anyone has ever studied or researched a lot about cults and how they start, I think that was a very clever tactic to use to have young children in like nice costumes singing at Christmas, for example, we'd sing at Christmas shows and we'd be performing for all these different people, big crowds, big concert halls and, uh, and singing and dancing and, and people loved it. You know, they're like, Oh wow. These, like I said before, like these kids are, they love Jesus and their parents are so wholesome and you know, so. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned uh, about how in the past, you know, it was it was really bad, and then they restructured itself. After the restructuring, which is the time period that you lived in the cult, what bad things happened? Because the reason I want to ask this is because we're we're, we're kind of talking about it. And somebody might listen to this and kind of get the idea that oh, the, all the bad stuff happened before you were in it, but you were still in a oppressive environment. So I just want to. What what kind of things did you go through? Um, and I not just you, but also your siblings and other people. Yeah. yeah. So for me and uh, yeah, for me and most of my siblings, it was a lot of uh, corporal punishment. So systematic in a way, because uh, whenever we did anything little wrong, either they would, if it was like a lighter offense that the kids were committing, um, they would, we would have to write lines. We'd read Bible passages and we'd have to write like pages and pages and pages of verses. And again, it's like that indoctrination, you know, that brainwashing again. And I don't, I don't say that in a negative way to the Bible or to Christians outside of a cult environment. I have no, I have no issue with that whatsoever. I, I, I celebrate anyone who finds something that gives them meaning and purpose in their lives. And as long as they're not hurting anybody, go for it. But, um, and then obviously we had to read the letters that were the publications that were being circulated by the by the cold and read those and write lines. But then for more egregious offenses, we were, yeah, we were spanked, we were slapped, we were hit. And in these, when those situations arose, we'd be in a room alone with um, another, like a man, it's not a relative. It was never my mom or dad. It was just some random person in that home who, um, who could do whatever he wanted. So these guys had a lot of free reign and it seemed like a lot of men that were attracted to join the cult was because of the cult's free sex policy. So they knew that they could kind of just do whatever the F they wanted, you know what I mean? Um, so a lot of them were very violent, very, very violent. So I've, I've encountered some men that, uh, yeah, very traumatizing to be around. They just had this dark energy and you'd think they wouldn't because they were believing in Jesus and they were praying every day and stuff. But they just believed in this, like, you know, you, you, you've got to, kids deserve a lot of, a lot of um, physical, it's almost like they deserve a lot of physical abuse. Anything that we did wrong, if we questioned things about the cult, for example, you know, anything we had the teachings or we didn't understand something, it was like, okay, now come in the room, here we go. So that was the main thing that I, I would say that I experienced was that. Gotcha. 
Now, uh, let me ask you this. So you are a, a gay man, uh, correct? What is What was the cult's views on LGBT issues? Well, you have to understand, like I said before, we didn't, uh, we started the cult very early. So that was around the time where like LGBT wasn't even really a thing. So because we were so insulated as well, I, I didn't know anything about that kind of stuff. I wasn't, I think I heard about it once or twice and that was it. It was not something that they were condemning constantly. It was not something that they would, it just wasn't a, an issue. There was nothing, there was no one coming to people saying, oh, I think I'm gay. And then now we have to write all these letters and publications about it to explain to people, if you're a part of the children of God, you cannot be gay because it wasn't happening. It wasn't something that was in our, in our midst. So for me, it was not a problem really um, in that way. I, I knew, I started to have questions about my sexuality when I was very young. Living in South Africa was kind of the first time where I was like, I, I feel different in some way. But what I'm happy about is that I didn't go through anything traumatic in that way. I I kind of put that on my mind. I wanted to be a kid. I'm not, I'm not the kind of person that's like, okay, you know, young children should just, you know, go and live their best life if they're gay. Like, I think it's very important for children to have a very normal not normal, that sounds bad, but you know what I mean? Like just have a simple childhood around their friends, just going and playing outside and, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. So I just had a lot of friends my age and we would play, we would do whatever. And I never had thoughts of any of them or anything with that. I kind of put that on the back burner again and not in a toxic way. I wasn't like suffering because of it. I was just really happy to be with my friends and just enjoying, try, trying to enjoy as much of life as I could. Um, so then it was when I was 17, I finally decided that, um, you know, it comes up, you know, when you suppress something, it can go for many years where you can deal with the suppression and you don't have to worry about it. I genuinely just did not even think about it for most of my childhood. Um, and then when I was 17, I was like, okay, this is not working. I just can't connect with a woman in that way. So let me, let me explore this other side of maybe who I am. Um, so yeah, for me it was that was simple. Gotcha. What about um so talking to you right now, you seem really well adjusted. Did it take a lot of work for you to get to that point? Um so can you talk about that? I know we touched on the support groups and things like that, but how did you get to the point of where you are now? Well, so like, for example, going to, to high school, college and university and all of that and have, making a lot of friends, I had never had a problem making friends. I'm a very social person. I didn't grow up. Obviously, there were some from our cult that were because of the trauma they went through, they completely withdrew and became very isolated and lonely and couldn't be vulnerable or, or open with people. Even after they left the cult, they were so afraid that anyone would find out and judge them or see them as like less than them, you know, like a victim, you know, you don't want to be seen as a victim. That's a very... That's a very like it can be kind of humiliating and weird because you're you're being targeted almost you're kind of like there's a limelight on you like you are the victim you are a survivor of a cult That's, you know what I mean so there was a lot of pressure for that to kind of keep that sort of hidden but for me it was different I was I was always a very social child and I actually a lot of times I actually really enjoyed the performances that we put on I'm I'm a very creative person I did drama and acting school when I was in in high school and college so for me that wasn't a big deal um, but when I when I went to university, I um, that was kind of where I guess shit hit the fan in a way. Um, I got into a lot of heavy drug use. I got into drinking a lot. I got in with wrong the wrong kind of people. 
Um, the university I went to was quite rough. There was a lot of uh, a lot of rampant drug use that was not being moderated or not being like addressed by the the teachers and stuff. Um, so that was a really hard time, and that was like my breaking point. You know, I I had a full on mental breakdown. I had to go home back to my to my family um, and try and piece the you know put the pieces back of my life. You know. Um, so that was difficult. And then of course, through that, I started to deal with a lot of depression, a lot of alienation, a lot of paranoia, a lot of fear, anxiety, confusion, loss, because when you grow up in a cult like that, that's your whole life. That's the meaning I had. I never, we were never raised to think about, okay, you need to learn about finances. You need to learn about, you know, eventually you're going to get a job. You're going to go to university. We never thought that was going to happen. We never knew that was going to happen at all. We thought the cult was going to last forever. So it was difficult, but, um, but yeah, through therapy in the last couple of years, I've had a lot of therapy. I'm still in therapy now. And it's been the most amazing decision I've ever made for myself. I did it all my own. No one was telling me like, you should do that. No one, none of my family or anything. They just were like, just keep working hard, stay positive. Like that was kind of the message we were all trying to impart to each other. Um, but now I'm in therapy, um, and, uh, feeling a lot more, a lot more inner peace, which is kind of my sort of way of living. That's awesome. I'm glad, I'm glad to see that you're doing uh, fine. So one thing you said you wanted to talk about was signs of cult-like behavior and dangers of groupthink that's currently occurring. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? And can you uh, elaborate on it? Sure. Yeah, that's a big thing for me. And I, that's another, that's probably one of the main reasons why I'm, I've been going on podcasts. I've already appeared on uh, two other podcasts and I've got another one that I'm going on tomorrow. And yeah, that's kind of my, um, my mission right now in a way, obviously I'm focusing a lot on my work, a lot of my creative, creative endeavors. I'm a creative person. I paint, I, I play guitar, I sing, I write my own music. So I'm very dedicated to that. That's like my, my biggest priority, of course, but, uh, as a way to kind of raise awareness for, um, cult-like behavior and uh, groupthink, I find it's uh, it's very prevalent now today. You know, even in the LGBT community, there's a lot of that going on. There's an extremist section of them that are trying to push a lot of uh, very controversial ideas. Like, I don't know, I, I see it in America a lot right now, which is like uh, drag queens performing at uh, kids' story hours and things like that. And to me, I just... I, I really have a strong intuition. And for me, I just immediately, when I started finding out about these things, the whole transgender thing, obviously any consenting legal adult, you know, live your best life, do what you need to do. But when it starts to impact children, you're starting to put that on children, that has triggered me and made me think like, well, that's kind of what I was going through in the cult. That was what we were told. We were like pressured into all of this, like more sexual stuff and like confusing young children is very, very dangerous. When you're playing around with a child's mind, like that is where things can be coming to, you know, you, that's where you get into the dangers of grooming and so many other things that can go off the deep end. So when I talk about group thing, that's the thing, you know, I think everyone needs to think critically for themselves, you know, really, um, really, really utilizing uh, critical thinking and being more skeptical of what you're seeing in the news of what you're seeing at school at your work, processing things in a way of like, well, does this really align with my morals? Does this really align with what I was raised in and the standards that have been set for me and that I've set for myself? Um, so I'm worried. And it's not just that, but even, you know, there's a lot of different organizations out there now. And um, and a lot of people, they will attach themselves to, to these um, 
to these organizations, to these movements and use it and, and abuse it for their, their own gain. Even some people who, who started to align themselves with Black Lives Matter movement in America, a lot of them were doing it for like show. You know, you had people during the riots going out with signs and they were doing it for a photo op. Like yeah. things of that nature. Do you know what I mean? Like that's- Yeah, yeah. I definitely dangerous. see what you mean. Like, like for example, um, with the Black Lives Matter thing, um, you know, obviously police brutality is bad and there are definitely issues within the black community that activists are trying to address. But one of the things that really stood out to me was how, like, I think some of the organizers, a lot of the organizers of the movement have been busted, uh, you know, stealing money. I think a couple of the women bought like mansions and things like that. And, uh, the mainstream media has been kind of silent about that. You know, you haven't really seen anybody talk about it. And I feel like, uh, you know, there's this word wokeness, right? Um, I have mixed feelings about the whole thing Mm. because I feel like we as a society are starting to address things that need to be addressed and make changes. But then I also feel like there are people who just kind of get lockstep and don't want to, they just say, we're going to think this way and we're not going to question anything. But like for example, you're just even saying that now. That sounds like cult-like behavior. The minute you wait, wait, just what you said now at the end, that's literally what I what I experienced again in the cult. And I'm not comparing obviously Black Lives Matter to a, to a cult like the one I was yeah. in. Obviously not. It's there's nothing in that way. But some of those tactics that these people use, like those two women that started Black Lives Matter or were part of the in the infancy stages, they did. They used a lot of that money, and they they are just setting themselves up. And that's kind of like what happens in cults as well. They they see a need, they see an issue, and they create a movement around it, whatever kind of community thing, to use this situation to, for example, with the whole George Floyd thing, a lot of these people were starting to talk about some very weird things like defund the police, all cops are bad. It's very extremist behavior. And I don't think a society can function properly and healthily when there's so many extremes, when there's two extremes, you got the far right that are just, you know, also very toxic. You have the far left that are also projecting and preaching things to young kids on social social media platforms like tiktok like instagram like youtube and i think it's uh it's very concerning and um i'm a big fan of i don't know if you know her candace owens i watch Uh, i know her i wouldn't say that i'm a fan um well go go well go on we'll say what you're about to say i can't remember what the documentary she made was but um she made a documentary about Black Lives Matter movement and the whole case with George Floyd. And she she made a lot of good points. Obviously, I don't know the whole thing. So I'm not like just going to blindly mm-hmm. follow after whoever is making some documentary because documentaries are uh, an entertainment form that can be manipulated. You know, you can edit certain clips to make it sound like this person is saying one thing when maybe they actually meant it in more of a nuanced way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you've got to be very mindful about that. Watching documentaries can be very misleading sometimes. But with that documentary that she made, there was just a lot of points you just can't really ignore. Um, and um, and I also am a really, really big fan of, uh, in California, Larry Elder, a black uh, politician who has been also fighting, fighting a really amazing sort of thing. You know, he speaks about, obviously I can't really speak much about the black community. I'm not black and I'm yeah. not from America, but from what he says is a lot of like, you know, young black men need to to step up. They need to work. They need to work hard. They need to be strong. That doesn't, you know, let's not, you know what I mean? I don't know the whole, I don't know the whole situation, yeah. but I, again, it's, it's going back to group think again, it's going back to this idea of 
with Black Lives Matter movement, there was a lot of beautiful things about it. It's not a, it's not a bad thing. When you boil it all down to its essence, it's a beautiful thing. It's it's bringing Black people together is what I've seen anyway from friends of mine that are Black as well in America and in England. It, so there's a lot of beautiful things that have come out of it. And it's the same with the Me Too movement. A lot of beautiful things came out of it, but a lot of terrible things came out. Like look at the mm -hmm. whole Amber Heard and Johnny Depp case. And also yeah. recently Marilyn Manson in... Uh, his ex-girlfriend, uh, Evan Rachel Wood. You know, a lot of these women, they've come out with fake, phony cases to try and attack and put down men and, and destroy their reputation in the media. And that's not okay. And it happened to one of my favorite comedians, which was Kevin Hart. He couldn't, oh, yeah, he couldn't yeah, host the yeah. Oscars because of what he said years yeah. ago. I'm gay and I wasn't offended by those jokes. I believe that nothing is off limits in comedy. I think if you make a joke and it's clever, you should say it and you should you should not be canceled for it. I respect that man. And I love that. I love that he was so strong in that moment. You know, he stepped into his power and he did not bend to the, to the rule, to what the woke mob was saying to him. He had apologized already. There is evidence of that. Leave him alone. Like leave these people alone. And that's the woke, the toxic woke left, which is kind of in some ways starting to kind of appear to me as a cult. So here's my thing. I think with the internet, um, it allows ideas to proliferate. And the thing about the internet is that, you know, good thing about it is that it gives everybody a voice. The bad thing about it is that it gives everybody a voice, you know? And, and the thing is, it's like, there's no more nuance anymore. Um, and the thing is, it's like this. So like what people like Candace Owens and Larry Elder, you know, all right, so you have, like, the left wing and then you have the right wing. And then I feel like you have – each side is uh, – there, there's a lot of division in this country right now. Um, and no, nobody wants to really listen to the other side. Everybody kind of gets stuck in their own little lane. And then you have people who come in and they say, oh, I can – go into this lane and I can uh, use this as a way to make money. So like you mentioned like Black Lives Matter and those ladies that stole the money. I see those ladies as just the, the left-wing version of like someone like say Andrew Tate. You know, you, you familiar with him? You know, that guy, he totally is like, uh, you know, he, he's, he's a grifter as well and he was doing some vile things um, and he has a, like the uh, the attention of a lot of young men in America who feel uh, adrift, and there's a number of reasons for that, you know. Mm -hmm. And the left has a hard time getting uh, young men, you know. They they feel left out, and so you have people like Andrew Tate and other right wing grifters who will come in and get them, they and because there's no. He's the, he's the kind of guy that saw a need and filled it. He really did. Yeah. He has a cult. I believe that his followers are. There is a cult going on in the Andrew Tate community. However, mm. I'm not going to sit here and um, insult or undermine or ignore the fact, like you said, there is a, a mental health crisis statistically proven, in, in, in especially in America, but I think also in the Western world here in Europe, 
the statistics have proven that suicide rates among men are higher than women. Yeah, they that's are. That's not being addressed by feminists. And I, I can't align it's myself not. with people that are not addressing the other, the other side of the coin. And um, I feel for these men. I feel for these disenfranchised men. I've got friends who are addicted to gaming. They have no life, no real life, no, no real purpose. They don't have like a full-time job that they're really proud to go to every day. They sit at home, smoke weed, and play computer games every day for like, you know, nonstop. And these men yeah. are they're craving something. They're craving either like some kind of structure, some kind of healthy way to live. And then they see someone like Andrew Tate, who's living this amazing life, super rich with women all around him. He's, he stepped into a place where these men needed someone to look up to a leader. So I, even with him, I don't really, with him, it's a bit complicated because even with him, I kind of feel like there is parts of what he's doing that is good. He is trying to do some good things for, for young people. He's gone on podcasts before and he's spoken about a lot of things that I actually kind of agree with, some of the more conservative things. But he doesn't practice what he's really preaching. What he should be preaching, what men need to see, is a strong man who's married in a healthy, beautiful relationship with his wife, with children, working hard, high standards, high morals. You know what I mean? Like living a good, honest life. And that's what these young men need to look up to. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, thing is, is like, I don't know if Andrew Tate is the guy. Um, for example, someone like uh, Jordan Peterson. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Jordan Peterson. Very much. Yes. Um, he 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 came on the scene, and I think he was trying to give a lot of young men the answers. But the way the internet and and group think is set up is that they kind of push people to uh, uh, one side or the other. So like Jordan Peterson, where he is now, he seems to be a bit more right wing than when he first started out. And I blame that on the left. The left doesn't want to really listen to the issues that people are going through and then vice versa. The right isn't doesn't want to listen to some of the issues. So for example, people like uh, Candace Owens, and uh, Larry Elder, their audience is right-wing people. Like, their audience isn't, uh, they're not even really trying to connect with uh, Black people. For example, um, you know, uh, there was an interview Larry Elder did, um, and they asked him, like, you know, he, he talks about, like, lack of Black fathers and things like that, which is an issue in the community. And they asked him, what has he done to do that, to fix that? And he hasn't really done anything. In fact, he's not even married. He doesn't even have any kids, you know? And so that's the thing. And it's like, uh, you know, I think that there are people who, you know, they have their ideas about the Black community and they they like want to see a Black person parrot those ideas to make them feel better. Like, for example, let's say I had negative views of gay people, right? You know, like I say, like people will say, oh, gay people, they're always out here, uh, you know, spreading STDs and blah, 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 and things like that. If there was a gay man who parroted those uh, things, like uh, those views, he would get a huge right-wing following, you know? Like, uh, I don't know if you remember Milo Yiannopoulos, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you feel that he speaks for the gay community? 
he's kind of gone off the scene. Last I heard, I don't know if it was a prank, but he talked about how he went to like a gay conversion camp or something that he's completely like reformed. He just seems to me, that man seems very damaged. I don't know what he went yeah, through, yes. before, but he seems like a very traumatized young man, a very lost man. The way he talked about, I don't remember her name, but there was that, uh, there's a black woman that was on SNL. He was saying the most disgusting things about her. Yeah. That was unforgivable. In my mind, it just, it made me sick to just even see that he was putting out that kind of energy into the world. Um, but again, uh, yeah, again, I think with the gay community and I think even with the black community, when you even said like the black community, like it's not, the, what is the black community? There's so many different aspects of it. There's so many different shades of it. What is with the world trying to group everybody into these little boxes? You're black, so you're part of the black community. What does that even mean? Mm. The gay community, what does that even mean? There are so many people of so many different walks of life. I've met many in Africa, for example. The South Africans are very different from the, from the Ghanaians that I was around. But the black community is, is a beautiful thing. It's a diverse tapestry of different kinds of people. Some of them are Muslims. Some of them are Christians. Some of them are atheists. Some of them are more modern. Some of them are more conservative. It, it, it's, it's, again, it's, it's this thing. And that's what's been, what's a side effect of social media now is that like going back to what you said about extremism, where are the moderates? Where are the moderates with YouTube channels? Why isn't there someone like Candace Owens, who's a moderate, who's completely in the center, who's viewing both sides and trying to bridge that gap? There's not enough of that. And that's again, going back to what I'm saying about groupthink, is that you are, you, you've got two different groups of think and they're on both ends of the scale, but there's not enough, um, there's not enough of, of someone in the middle trying to bridge that gap, trying to see, well, Candace Owens made some good points in her last YouTube video, for example, but then look at this other YouTuber who's on the left, you know, maybe he's, going. you know what I mean? Just something like that. And going back to yeah. the gay community, I'm, <laughs> maybe this may become controversial, but I'm, I'm a conservative gay man. I am not, I'm not associated with the LGBT community as it stands today. I don't, I don't agree with, I don't support and I don't agree with gay pride. A lot of it is very debauched. A lot of young children are there and they're exposed to some very disturbing acts while these men are parading around. They have, we have all the rights that we need. In America, it's like today is like never been a better time to be a gay man walking around, transgender, whatever. Yes, of course, there's some some ambivalence or some kind of pushback from them or whatever, but that's always going to be happening in a society. You cannot brainwash everybody to accept you. And for me personally, now where I am as a gay man, I if if someone came up to me like a Christian and said, I don't agree with your lifestyle, I would say, Well, thank you for being honest and I respect you for your opinion. You have the right to freedom of speech. Obviously, please don't try and physically hurt me, but have your point of view. And if you if you can't be around me or can't associate with me, I don't have a problem. Obviously, in a workplace, it gets a bit more gray areas, but I just mean generally. Um, yeah. And I'm actually what part of an organization right now um, on Twitter, especially. It's called Gays Against Groomers. And there's a big following now of a lot of gay men, a lot of lesbians and bisexuals. We're just very... We're actually very hurt. It's come out of a place of hurt and pain to watch our community morph into what it's kind of become now. Um, another one is also just uh, LGB without the T because a lot of le le lesbian, gays and bisexuals were now starting to feel like that's a different thing. Changing your gender from man to woman is not really the same as just living a gay or bi bisexual or a lesbian lifestyle. That's a sexual proclivity that we have, but we don't have anything to do with, we're not confused about our gender. We're just trying to live and assimilate and just live a normal life, go to work and whatever, and live with our partner in peace. 
So it, it's, yeah, it's a very, it's a very confusing thing. It's a very tough time to be gay and it's a very tough time to be black. It's a very tough time to be whatever, anyone. Yeah, I feel like uh, they er, the media kind of wants, like you said, to put people in a box and they want people to choose a side. They either want you to agree 100% with like, say, Black Lives Matter, or they want you to agree 100% with like Candace Owens. My thing is like, I can say I can agree with this, this, and this with Black Lives Matter, but I can agree with this, this, and this. I can agree with what one thing Candace Owens said, but I can disagree with another thing. And like you said, there's no moderates, there's no centrists, everything's too extreme. So my question is, how do we go about fixing this? Not just for racial issues, but lesbian, gay issues. How do we go about it? Is it just are we just, it's just the way it is now? Or is there a way to fix it? I think there is definitely a way to fix it. I think for every problem in the world that's ever been faced, whether it's conflict, whether it's war, whether it's, you know, Islamophobia, whatever, I think there's a solution for everything, but it will take um, some healing. It will take more people. And this is what I was saying before. Uh, for example, it starts in the home. It starts in the home. And if you are raising children and you have some extremist beliefs, you, you need to check in with yourself, whether you believe in God or whatever, you need to go and, and look, have a hard look at yourself and prepare yourself for raising a child and, and, and teach them critical thinking. In schools, there should be a class called critical thinking. I actually did a semester of that when I was in high school. Um, and it, it, it was and that really helped me get educated on things, you know, to be more critical, to be more skeptical. And I think it just takes it will take some time for people. And I think. People see now everything as quite bleak, but I'm seeing a really beautiful movement blossoming up where a lot of people are now starting to remove themselves from groupthink. They're not, you know, you. I know maybe it's a bit controversial in the Black community, but I think people like Larry Elder and Candace Owens are proving that to be Black, you do not have to be Democrat. You don't have to be anything. You know, I found it very um, offensive because uh, I watched The Breakfast Club, uh, Charlemagne the God, um, who I really love. I think he's a very fascinating person. And when Joe Biden was on there, he said, if you are, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. Yeah, and and yeah. I don't care if that's a joke. I don't care. To me, if I was a black man, I would just be like, this man is, I, I'm going to say it. I would think that's meant that man is evil because Trump has never said anything like that. He's never, he's never, um, I don't, not that I've ever seen, um, yeah. you know, and I just, it was offensive. And I wish that uh, Charlemagne would have checked him on that. You know, it's uh, I think it speaks to like the Democratic Party feels that they have an ownership of black people. And th there's a whole different reason for that. Um, I also feel like the Republican Party doesn't try to reach out to black people like the same way you were saying the left doesn't try to reach out to young men who are feel disaffected. In my opinion, I think uh, I think that's intentional. I think that they may have had some sort of agreement. They say, we'll let the Republicans say, we'll let the Democrats have the blacks and the gays and all that, but leave the young men and the conservatives are the there poor are quite white a lot people. Of, aren't there quite a lot of black people now that are more Republican or like black people? for? Well, Trump I think I think there was a there. growing there, there's a growing amount of black people who are dissatisfied with the uh, Democrats. I'm one of those. But the thing is, is, uh, you know, there are so many issues. It's like, if there was a better candidate 
you know, who actually tried to reach out and understand like what the black community goes through, the Republicans would probably have more. But the issue is that they don't. What I don't like, though, see, yes, you're right. There's I think mm. generally speaking, I would say from what I've seen from friends of mine, black people, friends, uh, people from the cult as well, who are ex-members who are living in America, I, I, I my heart kind of goes out to them in that way, because I think generally speaking, yes, the, the Republican, as far as I've seen the Republican Party on mass is very ambivalent towards that. They're kind they seem very condescending and, and like look down on the, we're talking about like the, you know, normal citizens that like we're talking about like middle-class, lower class, whatever. Um, but the, the reason why I really don't um, align myself with the left and with the Democratic Party is I think there's a lot of, with the woke thing as well, a big thing that people don't realize and are still not getting for some reason is virtue signaling. It's this attitude of like, let's use, let's weaponize the black community for our own gain. You know what I mean? There's a lot of those candidates, the way they speak about black people. If I was black, I would be disgusted. I'd be like, that's an insult. That's like, you're acting as if we need, as like black people need to be like babied or they're victims of something, even when a lot of them are not. Like a lot of people I'm sure live great lives as black people and, and are really respected in their communities. And it just feels like virtue signaling is a huge thing. It's, it's the, for example, it's that whole thing with the Black Lives Matter movement, which I really didn't like, was seeing people um, just write hashtag Black Lives Matter. And it's like, that was their activism for the day. That was like their good deed for yeah. the day. That's virtue yeah. signaling. You want to be, appear yeah. to the world and to your friends and to your community. You're a good person. Ha holding up a sign. What are you really doing? Like, do you really, really, are you going to these communities? Are you really talking to Black people and, 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 and giving them a voice or trying to understand, not from a selfish point of view, but from an altruistic point of view, from a point of view of like, selfless because it means something to you. you really deep down believe in it but like i don't know if a lot of these celebrities and a lot of these people that were promoting black lives matter i don't think if the black lives matter movement had started their mouths would be shut for business about black issues so many of these um celebrities in hollywood for example they never called out anything that they were seeing it's just now because it's 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 forced on them and i'm sure their their pr people or whatever their their agents are telling them okay now it's a good time right ha hashtag black lives matter you're not going to get any pushback you won't get canceled so it's fine this one is a good one to do but don't go to this one you know don't use hashtag this use hashtag blm use hashtag acap um, and I really don't like that. I just find that very disturbing and it disappoints me. And it's kind of hurtful to see because I feel bad for these young children that are growing up on social media. Just seeing hashtags is like their way of like showing that they're a good person. Yeah, I agree. So let me let me say one last thing and then I'll ask one last question and then yeah. uh, we can move on. Um, so like, for example, recently uh, in the state of Georgia, there was an election. Uh, between a guy, two black candidates, uh, Raphael Warnock, who was for the Democrats, and then uh, they had another candidate. His name escapes me. He's a former pro football player, um, and the guy has CTE. I don't know, man. What is this guy's name? Let me give me just one second. But basically, um, it was a guy? Yeah, the black wow. guy. He has CTE. Um, he like if you you know Joe Biden he seems to be deteriorating. This guy was even worse. Oh. Uh, let me see. Hold on a second. Republican uh, Georgia candidate, former football player. What is this guy's name? Oh uh, man, uh, Herschel Walker. That's his name. So 
the thing I'm bringing this up is this would have been a prime opportunity because there were a lot of Black people who were dissatisfied with Raphael Warnock. And this would have been an opportunity for uh, the Republican uh, Party to win that primary and get Black voters. But instead of having a candidate who actually related to Black people and spoke to Black people, they, in the issues that they face, they got a brain dead guy who can stuttering and is, can't speak straight. He's like, if you, I don't know if you know about Herschel Walker, but look him up. No, and, I will. I will. Yeah. And so what that says to me is just that, like, they don't really care. They just said, hey, here's a black man. Any black man will do. Just put him in there and we're good. And I think that's the issue. Like a lot of black people and a lot of gay people, a lot of people are dissatisfied with the left. A lot of women as well, too. But the Republican Party, they could just go and get them very easily, but they don't. Why is that? I think they don't care. And I think that's a whole nother issue. But let me just ask this one last question and then we'll uh, end it. Um, what advice would you give to young people right now dealing with uh, group think and this cult-like behavior? Um, I think that the best advice I can give any young person who is trying to figure out what their morals are, where they stand, how they are going to respond and process a lot of traumatic information that's going on. You know, you do see a lot of police brutality against Black people. You do see a lot of, um, you know, right now with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know, you have Palestinian protests. They're like threatening is, uh, Jewish families. And you know what I mean? And I think for young kids, what they, as young, you know, they need to just take everything with a grain of salt. And it goes again back to critical thinking. You need to be educated. And another thing I will say as well, which I think is very important is don't get stuck in just um, letting your algorithm on YouTube or in, or Twitter or TikTok or whatever, just be on one side. And that's the problem because now a lot of young people, they're getting fed information, not through just watching the news, where you can go to different channels, you can switch from, you know, Fox News to B to CNN or in England, you could trick to uh, BBC or whatever, or reading newspapers, you know, now you're getting an influx every single day of all of these kind of stuff. And if you're just looking at democratic things or a progressive, you know, whatever woke ideology kind of um, content, you are being you are being brainwashed. You're being uh, conditioned to see the, the the other side of the party as your enemy. And it's strange because Americans, the American citizens, they're all called American citizens. You're all American citizens at the end of the day. And that kind of attitude is what breeds situations like with the Republican community neglecting a lot of, you know, a lot of potential opportunities to really speak truth to power and really galvanize young black people who are disenfranchised or whatever and 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 get them going, give them encouragement, give them a platform. You know what I mean? Like give them a platform at the very least at some kind of, I don't know, um, I don't know what it's saying, you know, when they're on stage, when the, the politicians are on stage talking and debating or whatever, why not get a young person up on the stage with you and say, oh, this is a young person. He's considering voting for me. I want to let him speak about what he's going through in his community right now, not in the black community, but his individual experience as a human being. 
You know, we're not a monolith. Black people are not a monolith. White people are not a monolith. Gay people are not. We're all, we're, we all bleed the same color blood. Do you know what I mean? And I yeah. think for young people, they need to, when they're, when, when things become, their algorithm is too designed for them to be Democrat or Republican, they need to start before it's too late get into understanding that okay maybe i'll give him a try like just watch one video of jordan peterson or just one video of candace owens and try and think in a, in a come to it in a mind of like not judgment no preconceived ideas or expectations and maybe you will you will be able to see that some good points are being made and this is what i don't like going back to like andrew tate candace owens larry elder all of these people that are a bit controversial right now in the public sphere online um, instead of just saying, okay, well, Candace Owens is a black woman, but she's conservative and she doesn't like Black Lives Matter movement. So she's an enemy of all of us. Why not try and see, well, she's a person with her own values and own beliefs. Let me see if there are some things that she says that will agree with me. I'm not saying that everyone needs to start becoming a super fan of Candace Owens and Andrew Tate, but start to learn and condition your brain to be able to not see someone as how they're portrayed in the media, but listen to certain words. And it's the same with Trump. A lot of the CNN uh, media that was being put out about Trump was so toxic. You know, it was it was edited. It was showing him as like this evil villain when there was actually lots of Mexican people that were voting for him. There was a lot of black people that actually voted for him. If you look in the voter, the details of yeah, the voting. Yeah, it was an increase, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just yeah. very, very disappointing that people are getting this information. And we cannot... I'm not going to sit here and try and say like, well, we need to start to speak to like Candace Owens about these things. I'm talking for the people that are, are we're just viewers. We're just observers right now. We're not in the public sphere. And with all of these extremists on both sides, it's so important for young people to see, okay, take this person with a grain of salt. Maybe there's more to Candace Owens than what, than what meets the eye. Mm. Let me say this about the whole Trump thing. Here's an irony that gets me, right? It's like, you know, people will say that Trump is racist. And I'm not saying that he's not. I definitely think he has his prejudices. But when you compare him to uh, Joe Biden, Trump was only in office for four years. Joe Biden has been in office for about 50. And if you compare the two, Joe Biden has a longer history of racism and detrimental policies that he passed that has harmed the Black community. But... Nobody is saying this, you know, it's just Trump evil and racist. And again, I'm not a Trump fan, but I'm also not a Joe Biden fan. Joe Biden back know? in the day, he talked about he didn't want his children to go. He, he was fighting against, um, he was fighting for segregation. He wanted that to exactly. kids to grow up in a school in, in a jungle. And he said it, yeah. I, I'm very into people's energies and I'm very intuitive to people's, I'm, you know, I'm very sensitive to people's energies. When he was talking, to me, it genuinely seemed evil. It seemed spiteful. It seemed very antagonistic. Like if he met a black person walking past him, he's the kind of person that would feel something. He would get like rage built up inside him. And all of a sudden he becomes, he gets a chance through Obama that suddenly he could maybe become the next president. And all of a sudden uh -huh. he's promoting trans people, inviting trans people to the White House and all of this stuff. That's not who he really is. Let's be real. Let's call a spade yeah. a spade. Let's really speak. This is speaking truth to power. This kind of conversation is what needs to be happening, is speaking truth to power, is calling out um, uh, imposters. Imposters. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of imposters in all countries in politics and government and in the media, actors, actresses, a lot of them are imposters. 
They're not doing it from a, from a place of love and real genuine care for these people. They're doing it for their own pockets. They're lining their own pockets. They love getting the attention of people. Wow, my favorite actress, Miley Cyrus, just put hashtag Black Lives Matter. She just put, you know, trans, trans women are real women in her bio. She's the new queen, you know, let's stand her. It's just so brain dead in my opinion. Yeah, it is. I agree. But I think this is a perfect uh, way to end the conversation. I really enjoyed speaking to you. You too, man. Um, you too. Hey, thanks. You have a great day, man. Can I just say, last thing to say, can, thank you so much yeah. for giving me the platform. I'm, I was really looking forward to this podcast. I was a little bit nervous of how it might go, but this conversation was so illuminating for me and I felt educated myself. I felt I feel more knowledgeable now about a lot of issues thanks to this conversation. So, Hey, thank you. You have a nice day. You too, man. Hey, sorry to interrupt, but are you looking to reach a dynamic and engaged audience of curious minds? Well, look no further. Bright Brains Podcast is the perfect platform to showcase your business or product. You'll be able to reach a diverse and intelligent audience and engage with listeners passionate about personal development, technology, and more. Elevate your brand through thought-provoking discussions. Don't miss this opportunity to promote your business on one of the fastest-growing podcasts in the market. Contact us today to discuss advertising options and elevate your brand to the next level. Contact us at brightbrainspod at gmail.com to secure your advertising spot on Bright Brains today. Again, that's Bright Brains with a Z, pod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Now, back to the podcast. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us for another enlightening conversation here on Bright Brains. I hope you've gained valuable insights and inspiration to fuel your own bright ideas. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform or however else you listen to this podcast. Also, we can be found on all major social media. Just type in Bright Brains with a Z. And remember, the brightest minds are those that never stop seeking knowledge.